Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll talk with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson today about a new branch office that is opening in Midtown Detroit. We're going to talk about why we're getting the new office and also catch up on her preparations for the primary and general elections this fall. Then we're going to talk with the author of a book titled City of Refugees, which details how immigrants changed and even helped rescue a town in upstate New York. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the hour, we're going to have a really interesting conversation with the author of a book about how refugees reshaped an industrial city in upstate New York. It is a story about the wonders of immigration and kind of a departure from the zero-sum game of politics that we can and sometimes do have here in this country when we are talking about uh, immigration. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. It'll get started at about half past the hour. But first, I want to talk about the Secretary of State here in Michigan. Now, not everybody loves the idea of having to go to the Secretary of State office. Sometimes the wait times are pretty long, and finding an office is increasingly uh, difficult. But our current Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, has said that she is working really hard to improve those things. She is trying to shorten wait times and improving the office's online presence and adding more offices when they are needed. And speaking of adding more offices, that is actually happening today in the city of Detroit. A new Secretary of State office is going to open on East Warren Avenue in Midtown Detroit. Uh, I cannot really remember the last time we had uh, a new Secretary of State branch in in the city, and certainly we have fewer now than we did uh, many years ago. So to talk about why we're getting this new office, in addition to uh, the increasingly difficult job of uh, keeping our elections secure, which is going to be her main focus this fall, we've got Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson here with us. Uh, Jocelyn, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. Good yes, morning. Sir. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Okay, a new office on East Warren in uh, Midtown Detroit. My The first thing that comes to my mind is that that's pretty close, actually, to the new center office, which is uh, which is actually the one that I use the most uh, in the city. So talk about why are we getting a new uh, branch office in Detroit, uh, and why did you open in Midtown? Well, we built it. Uh, we started building it a few years ago, and it was important for us to recognize in looking at mobility patterns and, and where there were gaps, because there have been basically four offices closed in the area, including one on Woodward and one in the downtown area over the last few years, or the last few decades, uh, that we wanted to replace some of those services that have been lost, in-person services that have been lost to residents in those areas. And so this location was was, um, chosen a few years ago, and uh, we've been developing it ever since. And, And important to note that we've developed it and launched it in combination with a mobile Secretary of State office that goes around Southeast Michigan to locations like senior centers, foster care facilities, homeless shelters, other places where residents face obstacles getting to our other facilities so that they can be served right where they they are. For example, today our mobile office is at the Sheffield Center over at Grand River in Wyoming. Hmm. So we continue to to expand services all around the city, and this was an area that particularly was missing services in, uh, in relation to an increase in population that's also happened over the last several years. So uh, we should be clear. This is this is not a replacement for the new center office. This is this Correct. is a new this is a new branch office, and it, it's expanding service uh, in the city. Correct. Yes, it could have been a replacement, but we realized that the the need actually was for expansion, not replacement. 
So, um, you know, we, we, we have this, this, and I think it's also important to have an office in a city that has more than any other area in our state lost those in-person services over the last several decades. So I'm proud that this will help promote more equity in how we deliver those in-person services. And then there will also be a self-service station at the office that's open 24-7 that people can go to at any point to renew their licenses or their uh, plates. And of course, we have 13 other self-service stations in Detroit, in grocery stores and other places. Okay. Um, You ran on the prospect of making lines and wait times shorter at mm-hmm. Secretary of State offices, uh, I, I think that can that effort can best be described as uh, having some fits and starts uh, over the over the time that you've been in office. Give us an update on on where we are with that and how things can be made more efficient. Well, I'm proud that really over the last year it's been successful. We have uh, eliminated wait times in every office, and I track these daily and get a report every. Monday, uh, we got rid of the take a ticket and wait system that forced Detroiters and others to wait in line in our lobbies, in our lobbies for hours. And now all office visits anywhere in our state are done in an average of 20 minutes or less. People can schedule their visit ahead of time, or they can simply just walk up and either be seen right away or schedule a time to come back later that day in which they'll be seen right away. And then, of course, we've also expanded our offerings at self-service stations and online so that we've gone from a, um, a place where a few years ago when I took office, 29% of services were done outside of branch offices. Now we've doubled that so that 60% of services are done outside branch offices. So that's also significantly reduced traffic in our offices, making it more easier for people to visit and be seen right away. Is is that the the direction that we're headed in a in a bigger sense? In other words, that the the idea of having to go to a branch office to you know to take care of your driver's license or, yeah. your, or your car that that someday we won't really be doing that at all. Well, the laws would have to change in order for us to get there. I mean, first we ha- we are we are required to have a, uh, at least one in in person office in every county in the state. Uh, and then there are a number of services like title tra- tra- title transfers and someone transfers a title for their car that have to be done for the most part in person. And so we always have to provide those in-person services. There's some federal requirements for that as well. But we have where we can have automated services um, made those and expanded those and made those more available for citizens. One of the other things I noticed when I visited every branch office when I took office was that a lot of people um, just still use cash only. And so uh, it was important that we have self-service stations that take cash. Um, but for a lot of citizens, they're also just more comfortable doing things in person. So uh, we've increased the conveniences of doing things outside of the office and expanded those opportunities. But we still want to provide that in-person service in a convenient way, too. Yeah. I'm talking with Secretary of State uh, Jocelyn Benson about a new branch office that is opening on East Warren here in the city of Detroit, in Midtown Detroit today. Uh, it is uh, intended to expand access and services for uh, Detroiters. Uh, was was this idea partially about population growing in Midtown specifically, or is this about uh, the overall access here in the city? It's, it really is helping to address decades of disinvestment and office closures in the city of Detroit by previous secretaries of state. And we've seen Michigan's population overall and the number of vehicles increase during that time as well when offices, as you mentioned earlier, had been cut uh, and staff was also cut by about half. So here in Detroit, uh, as I mentioned, there was one office downtown closed and one up Woodward. So it was, you know, and, and others were moved out of the city. And so we wanted to... Uh, at the same time, there'd been a population growth in those areas, ensure that we were providing that more equitable service. It's also um, you know, uh, on a bus line and, and more easily accessible by public transportation. So um, we feel this location um, for now is, is uh, going to address all those issues. But again, we've added this mobile office as well to go to other parts of the city and other parts of the region to meet people where they're at in senior centers and foster care facilities homeless shelters and other places where residents are, are, are already are uh, so that we are addressing equity in every way possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, if you have a question for Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, uh, now, now is the time to, to call and ask it. Uh, you can dial 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we can uh, get the, the questions to the Secretary of State uh, that way. Um, I, I, I do want to talk uh, about elections and the preparation for our elections. Um, but I also want to give you a chance to talk about um, uh, what we have learned in the last few weeks about what happened on January 6th of last year, 2021, but also how that connects to what happened here in the city of Detroit in November of 2020, we watched uh, former Attorney General William Barr uh, say in in uh, very explicit terms that there was no fraud here in the city of Detroit. That uh, that the things that uh, Donald Trump, who was the president at the time, said about what happened in Detroit, what other people said about Detroit, uh, was not true, uh, and that he told them so. Uh, in, in advance of of January sixth, I wonder, as the the chief elections officer here in the state of Michigan, how how that fell on your ears. <laughs> well, it, thank you, Bert. I mean, it, that, that's a great way to put the question because it it really has underscored what we and election officials all across our state and really all across our country and other states as well have known all along that there has never been any merit to the claims of election fraud and. The former president and his aides all lied to every American, Republicans, Democrats, independents, in an attempt to overturn the outcome of their votes in the highest turnout election in our nation's history. And so for the former U.S. Attorney General to confirm this and, and again, just confirm what we lived through and, and have known all along the truth, that there was no election fraud in Detroit or in the state of Michigan in 2020, our elections were fair and accurate. The former president still continues to knowingly lie, um, uh, and uh, and and even though he's been told there is no truth to the allegations, it's uh, it's it's it underscores and I think hopefully amplifies to all Americans uh, the the reality of and the truth of of what we've been facing and dealing with, and I hope cuts through some of the misinformation so that we can really, in my view, prevent this from happening again not just this year, but in future elections. And by this, I mean the misinformation taking mm -hmm. hold when in truth our elections are accurate and our election officials are doing a tremendously great job uh, managing high turnout elections, particularly as, as they were in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. So I continue to, to hope that we'll see more truth revealed and connections made by the committee uh, and as they work to both bring about accountability for those responsible for what happened in our Capitol January 6th, but also prevent future attacks. So uh, thinking forward to August and to November this year, I know that uh, you, you've been working on another, a number of things to, to make sure that, you know, elections go smoothly mm -hmm. and are uh, as secure. Uh, what are some of the things that, uh, that, that you're most focused on, I guess, in, in, in terms of making things better? And again, uh, making sure that uh, that that the lies that uh, that mm. took hold in 2020 don't don't have the opportunity to repeat themselves this time. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things. I mean, one, democracy prevailed in 2020 because of people, because people stood guard, because people did their jobs, because election officials uh, all across the state uh, worked to uh, pull off a very successful, secure election that was able to actually withstand the scrutiny and the attacks. So uh, one of the things we're doing is protecting those people. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure on them to, for example, turn over, uh, you know, wrongly turn over um, election machines. Uh, we've been working to support them and also to help uh, provide more support against threats and connection to law enforcement uh, and recruiting more election officials, poll workers and the like through our website, michigan.gov slash democracy MVP, where anyone can sign up to work. Uh, in uh, a um, polling place in our state if they're qualified to do so. Uh, and then the other thing we're working on in, in part in response to a lot of the misinformation is to continue to reinforce the security of our system, uh, making sure people know about the built-in protections that we have against any disruptions, like paper ballots, to ensure 
we are accurately able to report election results, even if something happens with uh, the machinery of the process. And also reinforce to our clerks uh, that uh, they have that we have their backs. And uh, and and we, for example, did this by releasing eight million dollars in grant funding to help local clerks shore up the physical security, precisely because of some of these growing threats to their life, their well-being, but also the systems, the election systems they oversee. There was that story recently about uh, Republicans trying to encourage uh, citizens to, to, to be election workers in Detroit uh, as part mm-hmm. of the skepticism that they have about the integrity of, of our, our voting system. Obviously, anybody is welcome to to be an election worker. At the same time, uh, you know, you, you don't want people there uh, causing causing trouble. It seems like it, it could be a recipe for some some mischief. Uh, what what's the what's the right response to that? Well, exactly as you said, we think it's a good thing when anyone is on either side of the aisle uh, encouraged or. Uh, um, considers applying to be a poll worker. Uh, I, it's something that we've continued to encourage throughout my tenure. But what's a problem is, is if during that recruitment process they're fed misinformation about the system and then come into the position, which is a really important position, uh, kind of activated through misinformation as opposed to accurate information, which is what we need our poll workers to be stewards of, the accurate information. So, um, so with those concerns, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in our clerks, and we've been working directly with them continually as they, if they get applications for anyone new to serve as poll workers, to make sure they have the support to hire election workers from both sides of the aisle who will do the jobs with integrity. And, you know, secondly, I fully expect if anyone is appointed from from any party or with any affiliation, any poll worker uh, who does. Uh, work for the clerks, which they do, and then violates the law by disrupting the process on election day, would be swiftly uh, removed and, and dealt with and, uh, and held accountable. And that goes not just for poll workers, but anyone who shows up trying to disrupt our election processes on election day. The law is very clear, and voter intimidation is illegal, and uh, we're working with law enforcement to ensure that if there is any disruption or otherwise illegal activity at any polling place in Michigan on election day, that it's dealt with swiftly with a rapid response system, and those perpetrators are held accountable. Yeah. Uh, quickly, before we have to let you go, I saw something pretty interesting last week uh, when Michigan mm-hmm. announced that uh, residents can now purchase digital license plates. Uh, we are mm-hmm. only the third state to approve these digital plates. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little about why we decided now is the time. I don't really understand how this works. Uh, I tried to look a little, a little more into it, but, uh, yeah. but it seems popular. Well, the state legislature legalized digital license plates years ago, and now a vendor has actually met the requirements to provide them to our residents. We don't sell them or receive any revenue from them. They're strictly a product of third-party companies. They cost a, a bit more than our $5 standard plates. Um, but there are many individuals and businesses with fleets who who may appreciate them. So it's another option for individuals who want it. I don't know um, how, uh, you know, we don't see any way in which they would make it any easier to renew your registration. In fact, we expect the companies that offer these services of digital plates um, that they're using simply the same online service that anyone in the public could use themselves for a plate. But residents interested in a digital plate are still issued a metal license plate as well at the time of registering their vehicle at the Secretary of State office. So they also still have that backup. Uh, and we'll you know, see how, how this new option emerges for our residents and businesses with many cars. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jocelyn Benson, Michigan Secretary of State, always great to have you here to catch us up on things uh, about uh, your office and, of course, about uh, our elections. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Thanks. Coming up, we're going to shift gears and talk about the book called City of Refugees, which explores the beauty of multiculturalism in the Rust Belt city of Utica, New York. It is an homage, really, to the power of immigration and the power of immigrants to change and even rescue American cities. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. We like to say that uh, America is the land of opportunity for all who aspire to be here. And, of course, our nation has often accepted enormous waves of immigrants from all over the world. And if you believe that this is a country of immigrants, you probably love some of the things that immigrants provide. They are the lifeblood of our culture and provide a combination of languages and food and rituals that give us a real sense of purpose and meaning. They define what is American in so many ways. But while it's true that immigration trends are pretty strong in our country, America is doing a particularly poor job right now of accepting refugees. The number of refugees being resettled in the United States has plummeted from about 200,000 in 1980 to just more than 11,000 in 2020 and 2021. And this is at a time when the world is seeing some of the largest numbers of people who are fleeing home and seeking refuge. A new book by journalist Susan Hartman makes the case that immigration is good for America, that immigrants are a lifeline to Americans and to American cities. Her book is called City of Refugees, and it explores the lives of several refugees who remake their lives in Utica, New York. There are benefits for them, and just as important, there are benefits for the city of Utica. And her stories leave us with questions about why there is such a pushback against immigrants. Why are Americans struggling so mightily right now to keep this national experiment, which depends so heavily on immigration, alive? And what would it look like if we were more fully embracing of refugees and immigrants into every American city? Susan Hartman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Let's start with you talking a little about your relationship to Utica and why you were drawn to writing about immigrants in that community. Yeah, well, I had gone to school near Utica, and in the 70s, I had visited the city and was always struck by uh, how asleep the city seemed. It was depressed, like many other Rust Belt cities, and over the years, I began to hear that it was shifting a little bit, and um, I got a call from a stranger in 2013 who knew I wrote often about immigrant communities. He was an economics professor at Hamilton College, and he said, did I know that Utica had become a city of refugees, that it was now a quarter refugee and refugee families? And I hadn't, and he said, if you come up, I will show you around. And a few days later, I went up, and I, I saw the city had become slightly transformed at that point, and it's continued to change, um, where there had been abandoned factories and buildings. There, were, um, there was new life. There were new stores. Um, there had been hundreds of abandoned houses because there had been a lot of arson, in the, especially in the 90s. And waves of immigrants, especially the Bosnians, had come in, um, worked, bought these houses very cheaply and restored them and brought life back to new neighborhoods. So I was intrigued. I began writing it a story for the New York Times about it, which was published in 2014. And then instead of turning my back on the, on the story and moving on, I kept going with it. And so for almost a decade, I was reporting on the city and especially on three families. Mm. So let's back up just a little and talk a little about Utica. It's, it's history and I guess where it found itself uh, before this influx of, of, of refugees. Yeah, so it had been um, a place where immigrants came 
and worked in mills. It was a, a big knitting uh, center, um, especially at the turn of the century. And then when the mills left, as they left many uh, Rust Belt cities, manufacturing plants came in like General Electric and they replaced those thousands of jobs that had been lost. So they were employing immigrants. And then Utica really thrived. It was a very bustling city, a hub. It had a wonderful downtown. With, uh, it was known as kind of a gracious downtown. It had beautiful Dutch elm trees before Dutch elm disease. And um, it was, yeah, it was a thriving place, especially with a, a very um, wonderful Italian-American uh, community with lots of, lots of different stores. And then starting in the 60s, the plants left, and then there, there was nothing to replace them. So there was a, a kind of flight. People uh -huh. left Utica. Um, there was the phrase, last one out of Utica, turn out the lights, um, a, a real sense of demoralization. And people began to burn, some people began to burn their houses for insurance money. So there was a lot of arson. In the, in the 90s, about 94, a strike force was established um, to get to rid the city of arson, and that was a great help. So after after that, about 200 buildings and vacant lots were cleared, and it was at this point that the Bosnians had begun coming into the city. So the stage was kind of set for some rebuilding. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you describe that history in Utica, I can't help but think of of Detroit uh, and and many other uh, Midwest Rust Belt cities. Yeah, I mean it's a common Absolutely. story. Yeah, Buffalo lost half of its population. Uh, Utica went from a hundred thousand to six sixty thousand. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, you you begin to tell this story, and of course the city is the backdrop for the story, but the, the, there are people, of course, at the center of the story. Yeah. So Sadia, Ali, and uh, Marisha, um, talk about who these people are and what their stories are. Yeah, of course. Well, Sadia... It's a young Somali Bantu woman. Um, one reason I chose her is she is very, she's a very rebellious teenager when I first met her um, with a mind of her own. And I thought she was very interesting because she had her foot in one world. There are certain ways she honored traditions, loved her family, and, and Somali Bantu tend to have very large families. But on the other hand, she wanted to have a life as an American teenager, and that was very hard on her family. Somali Bantu girls are expected not to date, to marry young, to, when they are in the household, to help with the children, and, and she did not want to do that. So I felt she was just a really interesting person to follow, and uh by the time I left her, when the story ends, she's in quite a different place. She's grown up. She has embraced her own way of being uh, a young mom, and um, she has ambitions of her own. Um, so that was one family. Marcia's family was um, is a, a, a very hardworking Bosnian family. She had a big dream of opening a cafe. And many people do, and I was curious to see whether this would actually occur. She's a gifted um, pastry chef, and she had a home bakery in her in her house, and um, and she she now has this very successful restaurant. It's still very difficult. It's always difficult to be a restaurateur, but it's it's thriving. Um, the other family was. Uh, a man named Ali, who 
who had been a translator for Peter Jennings, another American journalist in Baghdad, and his life had been threatened. So he fled, he came to Utica, and he'd been working as an interpreter. And he interested me so much because he was always torn between Utica and Iraq. And this often happens with refugees. They put down roots, and he, he loves Utica and is very grateful to Utica, but the, the call of home is huge for him. And he still fights anti-terrorism by, he had been working for three years with allied forces in Baghdad. So he would go back and forth and, um, and, and he still is going back and forth. He has a home in Utica. He just bought a house. He's very proud of that. Um, but he, he still pulled back. And and so when you're telling these stories, these individual stories, I mean, you're 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 talking about their individual struggles, but there's also this connection to the idea of rebirth um, in the city itself. And and I think one of the wonderful things about the book is that it 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 does connect those two things: this this new life for these people who come from other countries and how they help Utica find a new life for itself after after years of decline. Yeah, I think there's an appreciation among many residents for what the refugees have brought. Um, they appreciate, first of all, the food, because these little tiny ethnic restaurants have opened and there are all these choices Uticans never would have had. And because the residents have this immigrant background where they remember what their um, Italian, German, Irish, Polish grandparents went through, there's an appreciation for the struggle. Um, you know, they, they, it's possible some feel more sympathy towards some refugee groups than others. You know, I think the Bosnians are very widely admired because they came with more resources, with building skills, educations, um, and also white skin. But even with the Somali Bantus, who've had more of a struggle because they came from the camps, they've been in limbo sometimes for 15 years, um, arrived often speaking no English, not being able to write, so they've had a longer journey, but again, there's this appreciation, and they've seen they've seen how far they have come. They, their own children now, the Somali Bantus, are starting to go to the local community college and other area colleges. They themselves are buying home. More than half the Somali Bantus now own their own homes. So that's huge, and that has helped the city. And it can be seen even visually when you come into the city now, although in lots of ways it still does look like a gray, rust-built upstate city. Um, There are these flickers of life. And a lot of new money has come into the city from the state. There's a new hospital rising in the middle of, of of the city. That's very exciting for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are these really wonderful changes. Mm. Uh, I'm talking uh, about refugees. I'm talking about immigration with Susan Hartman, who is author of the book City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town. Uh, I want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you make of Detroit and Metro Detroit's immigrant populations? Uh, what do you think they add or bring to our lives here in Southeast Michigan? Uh, do you wish our area had more immigrants? Do you think that immigration is perhaps a way to breathe new life into places, particularly in the city of Detroit, that have been so abandoned by so many people? Uh, think of all the places that used to be full with families uh, in the city that are now pretty desolate. Uh, What kind of place do you think this would be if we welcomed 
tens of thousands of people from around the world into Detroit or into places like uh, in the suburbs, Royal Oak, Dearborn, or, or Warren. Uh, do you think that would improve our cultural and economic competitiveness? Do you think it would solve some of the problems that we have uh, from population loss? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, uh, put comments there, and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Uh, of course, we also always want to hear from uh, people who have come to our our little neck of the woods from from other countries uh, did you move to southeast michigan from some place abroad uh, tell us why and talk about the experiences uh, you've had uh, being welcomed here but but also what you feel you brought to uh, to the equation how are you changing uh, southeast michigan um, by being here again 313-577 1019 uh, is the number on the phones. Uh, before we get to uh, our listeners, uh, I, I, I want to talk just about a little bit about politics in in New York and in uh, Utica. Um, ha- has this influx of immigration changed the politics of that area? Um, it's a pretty conservative area. Um, a Republican area, mm-hmm. but Utica itself has is less so, um, and I think that may be partly because people have different neighbors and there's more tolerance. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's say during the the Trump years, um, uh, Utica remained. Um, in, in favor of refugees, but I feel that um, the refugees have said people felt maybe they had the right if, to say something maybe that was hurtful that they might have held inside before the Trump years. That there was mm-hmm. almost a little bit of a license mm-hmm. to say things that might not be very kind, and that I've heard refugees say they were hurt by that. Um, but there was that was a, a harder time for refugees there. Um, but you know, refugees are not monolithic. In my book, Ali, he voted for Trump because he he hoped that Trump's economic policies would, you know, would be a good thing for depressed areas. Um, and although he was very upset when Iraq was on the list of nations whose uh, residents were not allowed to come, and then that was changed. But, um, yeah, that was, I I report in the book that that was a hard time. There were people who were expecting grandparents to come from other countries, and then that was cut off. And then the companies have suffered, and this is true across the Rust Belt, that when the pipeline of refugees was cut, there were companies who needed those employees were actually now anxiously waiting for refugees to come. And in Utica, I think it's interesting, two of the biggest employees, Chibani, which is a yogurt plant mm-hmm. in New Berlin, and Turning Stone Resort and Casino, they they are very much, um, you know, on pins and needles waiting. And Turning Stone has decided to build uh, residential apartments on its campus for refugees. And they're actually very nice one, two, and three-bedroom apartments that are going to be subsidized with the idea that somebody would not have to drive from Utica the 25 minutes to get to the, the resort to work there because you have to have a car or you have to carpool to make it easier to attract refugees. They're building this housing. So I think that shows the need for it, the desire, and they see them as very good employees. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue this conversation about uh, immigration, about the book, 
City of Refugees, uh, and we will get to you and your phone calls and comments. William in Rochester, Paul in Detroit, Harry in Sterling Heights, you will be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. And again, you can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Susan Hartman. Uh, she is the author of a book called City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathe life into a dying American town. We're talking about the power of immigration and immigrants to not only uh, change our lives uh, here in the United States, uh, but also to breathe new life into cities like Utica, New York, which is uh, the setting for Susan's book, uh, but also places like Detroit, where we've lost so much population. Is immigration, increased immigration, is welcoming more refugees than we do uh, a way to reverse some of those trends? Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Let's start today with William in Rochester. William, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, sorry, first time caller. I feel a little nervous. That's okay. Go ahead, William. Um, <laughs> so uh, when, when I called in, my main reason for calling in was, uh, more than anything, just to kind of express appreciation, I guess, for the area. So we're a, um, an immigrant family, technically. We came in 1989 from South America. I am Caucasian, raised by Caucasian. So I look the part, which makes integration a little easier. Mm -hmm. But the part that I'm really grateful for is um, my father is uh, basically uh, Peruvian-born, Peruvian-raised. So I had a very different cultural kind of experience, and my mom is very forgiving and understanding. Um, but growing up here, we came with very limited resources. It was basically just us, my immediate family, no other uh, close family near us. So we were, you know, made family and connections with the people around us that were like-minded, that were gracious and kind to us. Um, but that being said, growing up in Troy, uh, Rochester, and then moving to South Warren and Pontiac, I got to kind of see the blend of Michigan and Detroit especially. Um, you got to kind of understand all that. And when I joined the military, it was really helpful because I had, you know, interacted with people of Arab descent. I'd interacted with African-Americans. I'd interacted with um, just everybody. I mean, you, you name a population group and we kind of have it here in spades. Uh, so it's pretty great. And I feel like that made my interaction with others a lot more fluid. Uh, it made me more empathetic and understanding and then also kind of able to see their perspective. So when something needed to get done, you were all able to come together and accomplish a goal. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow, William, that's a that's a really great story. I'm glad you called uh, and and shared that. And and the, the part about experiencing more of the country's diversity through your military service is a really interesting dimension. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, military policy and and criticism, uh, you know, on this show quite a bit of of you know American military policy. But it's a really important uh, part of the military story in this country that it is uh, very representative of the many different parts of this nation. I mean, there are some stereotypes about who serves in the military that are quite wrong about uh, about how that experience, uh, how that experience goes. Uh, so, so William, I'm really glad that uh, that you called and and shared that. Uh, let's yeah, go. That was yeah, go beautiful. ahead, Susan. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mean, this is a this is a community that that you know, despite having lost 
as much population as we have in the city uh, is a very rich immigrant community. It always has been. Um, mm-hmm. And and William's experience, I think, is is really indicative of the kind of things, the kind of stories that uh, that Metro Detroiters have. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, let's go next to Harry in, Ster- in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to the uh, show. Great topic. Uh, I'm of Polish descent. My uh, my uh, mother's parents immigrated from Poland. My dad's parents from Germany. And they went to Hamtramck. At one time, Hamtramck had 54,000 people. And it was on a decline. It has come back now because of the Yemenis and the Arab population has, has uh, populated the north part of, uh, of Hamtramck, which mm-hmm. was a total disaster. And I give these people credit for taking over some of their properties and and and, and redeveloping it. Uh, yeah, uh, Harry, that's a great that's a great example, uh, and it's somewhat similar, Susan, to the story of Utica. Hamtramck is a really small city that's uh, mm-hmm. inside the city of Detroit. Really, uh, it was a Polish community for a really long time. It has morphed really into a Yemeni and and mm-hmm. Bangladeshi uh, uh, community. Um, and that has, similar to Utica, it, it has really revived important parts of, of, of that city. And overall, it is uh, a more stable place, I would say, now than it was 20 or 25 years ago before uh, that influx. Um, and so there's, there's yet another example of the ways in which, uh, you know, immigration um, kind of cycles, right? Um, there there were Polish immigrants in that area for a long time, and now we have immigrants from other parts of the world, and and, and they're doing many of the same things that uh, the Polish immigrants went. And, and again, that seems very similar to the story in Utica. Yeah, that's so great to hear. Uh, again, uh, Harry, thanks so much for the call and the uh, comments. Yeah, uh, let's go to Dan in Southfield. Dan, what's on your mind? Yeah, Stephen, always a pleasure to talk to you. Fascinating topic. I I I have many friends in the African American community who resent the idea that immigrants have been given privileges that they have not received. You know, there's mythology about it. You know, that mm-hmm. they get tax privileges or anything that, you know, that somehow immigrants are placed above them in the order of uh, privileges. Sure. Sure. No, I mean that's a that that's a tension that exists in a lot of communities. Uh, Dan, um, you know, African Americans in Detroit, for instance, have been here for a very, very long time, and and uh, and we've watched as immigrants from other com- countries uh, have come and, in many ways, you know, leapfrogged us in terms of opportunity uh, and economic stability, and and uh, you know the the question. Why does that happen? Of course, we all know why it happens. I mean, there's a history of inequality in this uh, in this country that that is inescapable. Um, at the same time, I think there's really important work that's been done to show that uh, mm-hmm. African Americans benefit um, when there are immigrants in our communities. That uh, that there is um, a, a coexistence that's really important to both to both communities and that uh, part of the key in some cases to African-American opportunity is through uh, immigration. But you're absolutely right about uh, the mythology there and, and the absolute, uh, you know, feeling uh, of resentment that exists among, among some African-Americans toward immigrant communities. Susan, I wonder if you can talk about how that played out in, uh, in Utica in, in this uh, city of refugees. Yeah, that's, very much in Utica, um, many African Americans came to Utica as bean pickers in the 1940s hmm. and settled there. Um, and for a long time, they had to be in this one, really a housing project. They were limited to that. When arson came um, and whites fled, they then went into a a neighborhood called Corn Hill that had been devastated by fire. Um, but yes, there's some feeling that uh, the refugees have gotten a kind of attention and help that they have not. And some of that is true. Um, and in my book, I talk about that. One African-American woman, she put it beautifully when she said, um, 
that the refugees come with hope. We don't we don't have that hope mm. because of the difference in history and background. So there's that tension there. On the other hand, they are neighbors in Corn Cornhill and in other neighborhoods in Utica with refugees and as you just said, Stephen, they have a relationship and um in in some ways have you know, thrive through interaction. But yeah, there there's that tension. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Susan Hartman, it was really great to have you with us to talk about uh, immigration and, of course, to talk about your book, City of Refugees. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. That is going to do it for us today. Uh, Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Mark Fullman about his new book, Trigger Points and What Can Be Done to Stop Mass Shootings from Happening as Frequently as We Have Been Enduring Them. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.